Turn with me, if you will, back to Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3. Today we'll look at verses 8 to 24. 8 to 24, a huge section. Well, the news this week has not been all that good, although that's not at all unusual, is it? Video smuggled out of Chechnya implicates Russian soldiers in atrocities there. Thousands of people have perished. A million more are in imminent danger dying in Mozambique because of the floods there. There are reports that the terrible suffering continues in places like Kosovo and Iraq, places where wars were supposedly going to fix it. AIDS continues to kill people. 17,000 died in America in 1998, the last year that we have figures for. Last year, 40,000 more were infected with HIV in this country. Four million more are infected in Africa every single year. Where there is no treatment, it's a death sentence. First graders shot another first grader and killed him in school this week. Meanwhile, supposedly the best and the brightest people candidating for the highest office in the most powerful country are reduced to slinging mud at each other, as always. You could go on endlessly, but you know, you read the paper too, I'm sure. You ever get the idea that something's wrong with the world? As much as we would love to bury our heads in the sand and just pretend that everything is fine, I mean, after all, our prosperity is soaring and we're all working and there's a lot of fun things to do. One only has to read the paper, watch the news, to know that something's profoundly wrong. The world is very often a very ugly, hopeless-looking Something's wrong. That's the subject of our text this morning. For here we read the account of the drastic change from the harmonious paradise which God created to the fearful fallen place which we see on the evening news. Here we're forced to consider what happened. Well, let's read it. Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? 
the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the, the, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing, and with pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and for his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. There are two simple but very profound truths that I want us to reflect on for a while from this text. The first is this. Sin has shattered God's work. Sin has shattered God's world. In an election year, there's no shortage of, an opi of opinions about what would solve the world's problems. But seldom do any of these solutions take into account the real problem. The problem our text explains, which is that sin has shattered the world. Now last week we saw how sin works. How it starts by simply disregarding God's word. How it seductively appeals to our desires. And then dares to usurp God's own place. But here we see not the process of temptation by which we so easily get into sin. But here we see the terrible effects of sin. The effects that sin wrecks on the whole creation once it enters. Now in these verses we see uh, several such results of sin. Let me just go through quite a little list of them, commenting on, uh, on each one for a few moments. First of all, we see here that sin shatters our relationship to God. Sin shatters our relationship to God. We see it right away in verse 8. God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
presumably a time of fellowship between God and the man and woman who he created in his own image. But they're not there. They're hiding out among the trees. Hiding in shame. You see, the relationship has been broken already before a word is spoken. For man's very nature has been changed. He's been alienated from his creator when he took God's creation and used it against God and usurped God's place for himself. Something changed in his very nature. One author describes it, obedience has given way to rebellion. Openness has given way to shame. Responsibility has given way to guilt. And freedom has given way to bondage. And so as we proceed through this section to the end of the chapter, our perception that the relationship between man and God has been shattered is only confirmed. For as we get down to the very last verses, in verses 23 and 24, God banishes man from the garden. And, and sets a guard to keep him out. Now, interestingly, that guard, we read, is made up of cherubim. Cherubim. Those are the heavenly hosts that when we read about them in, in other places of the Scripture, continually before the Lord cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And you see, that's just exactly the problem. Man can no longer stand before a holy God. For he's now sinful. Sin shattered man's relationship to God. We also, as we work down through this passage, see that sin shatters the relationship between the man and the woman. We see that effect of sin right away, too. Look at verse 12. And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Wow, what a change from the last chapter, huh? When the Lord brought the woman to the man, and there he's exclaiming his joyful delight for this woman that God has made. Oh, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Now he abandons her, distances himself from her, blames her, ultimately God, for what he knowingly did. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? You seen that in your home? I've seen it in mine. How many men wouldn't be caught dead standing up for their wife, especially not taking the blame for them? That's what sin does. It shatters this most intimate human relationship between a man and a woman. Indeed, this is not just a passing incident, but when we get down to the verse 16, the last part of that verse, the Lord tells us that this tension is going to be the new norm in a fallen world. There we read, your desire, he says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about that phrase and what it means. Susan Foe, who was at Westminster Seminary just before me and wrote a wonderful uh, article in the Theological Journal about this. Let me quote 
what she says. She says, the woman has the same sort of desire for her husband that sin has for Cain, a desire to possess or control him. This desire disputes the headship of the husband. And so these words mark the beginning of the battle of the sexes. As a result of the fall, man no longer rules easily. He must fight for his headship. Sin has corrupted both the willing submission of the wife and the loving headship of the man. So the rule of love founded in paradise is replaced by struggle and tyranny and domination. And you and I have seen plenty enough of that, haven't we? We still see it. Wives manipulating and evading their responsibility to their husbands. And husbands abandoning, accusing, and dominating their wives. Why? God didn't make it so. But sin shattered the marriage bond. And still does. We also see that sin shatters the relationship between man and the created order, the rest of the creation. You know, the world was perfect the way God made it. He gave the responsibility for the rule of the world into man's hands. Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. And man enjoyed the benefits of the garden while tending it as a responsible steward. Oh, but those days are gone. For the man used this creation of God to rebel against God. And so in verses 16 to 19, we read that God curses the earth because of man. Oh, the man and woman will still be fruitful and multiply, but with great pain and struggle, the woman will bring children into the world. And the man and woman will still exercise dominion over the earth, but the earth would not willingly submit only by the sweat of his brow could the man exert his will. And in the end, the earth will win the struggle. And man who came from dust will die and return to the dust from which he came. Sin shatters the relationship between man and the rest of creation. And the shattering of that relationship still continues to grow worse. Indeed, centuries later, the Apostle Paul, writing in, Romans 8 tells about how the whole creation continually groans as in the pains of childbirth, waiting to be liberated from this bondage to decay, bondage to which it was subjected because of man's sin. Sin shatters the relationship between man and the creation. Finally, in this first point, we see that sin shatters life itself. Of course, you know the penalty that God promised when he gave the command, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And that death was not just the death of fellowship with the Creator. And it was not just the death of marital bliss. 
And it was not just the death of harmony with the creation. It was the death of man and woman. They were expelled from the garden, handed over to the hostile elements with the promise that death was inevitable to dust you will return. Sin shatters life itself. I wish I were a great orator. I wish I were a master of words. I wish that I could somehow effectively communicate to you what I think this passage means to say to us. You see, I long to make you loathe sin. Unfortunately, you and I live in a culture that glorifies sin. We watch it for entertainment. Oh, we would never murder or commit adultery, but it's so entertaining to watch others do that. And so over the years, we become callous to sin. Indeed, for most Christians, the goal of the Christian life is to walk as close to the edge of sin as we can without falling off into the abyss. But as I meditate on this passage, as meditated on this passage this week, I came to believe that God wants us to see the ugliness. He wants us to see the way that sin has shattered the beauty of his creation, the beauty of everything, so that we might hate it. That we might loathe it, be repulsed by it, flee from it, even in its simplest little form. Hate it like God hates it. And walk as far away from it as possible. For you see, while sin may look so innocent, and may feel so good, and may seem like such a small thing, Sin alienates us from our Creator, who is the only source of any good thing, the one who knows what is truly best for us, the one to whom we owe allegiance and love. It alienates us from it. Sin destroys the most precious family relationships, turns homes into war zones, turns love into hatred, turns tender care into tyranny, turns uh, selfless service into angry vindictiveness. Sin destroys the beauty of the creation. As stewards become, stewardship becomes exploitation. As people made in God's image become expendable. As the creator himself gets pushed aside in favor of Mother Earth. Indeed, sin will eventually kill us. It has shattered God's world. It's despicable. Every single sin is despicable. God hates it. And so should we. There's a second truth, though, 
that this passage tells us is a glorious truth that's also unfolded here that we have to hear. And that's this. God has shown mercy. God has shown mercy. You know, in a passage which relates the fall of man and God's judgment, the curse which is pronounced upon the earth, one would hardly expect to find even a word of hope. That's only true if you don't know the God of the Bible. For here in the midst of judgment, God shows mercy. Again, let me skip down through the passage and point out several incidences, several places that we see that, several ways that we see God showing mercy. First of all, God shows mercy in that man does not immediately die. Man does not immediately die. Think about it. God gave a command, a very certain command, a very clear command. You will not eat, and if you eat, you will die. End of discussion. Understood? Guaranteed. The man and woman violated the commandment. They incurred the judgment. So why is it that in verse 8 and 9, we have the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day saying, where are you? Why? Calvin answers so eloquently. He says, why does he call them to undergo this examination? Except that he has a care for their salvation. And this doctrine is to be applied to our benefit. There would be no need of a trial of the cause or any solemn form of judgment in order to condemn us. Wherefore, while God insists on extorting from us a confession, he acts rather as a physician, not a judge. You see, what Calvin is saying, the very fact that God came calling man, forcing him to face his sin and say, yes, I ate, is because God wants to save him. He has in view his healing, not his death. The very fact that man did not die when he first took the first bite is evidence of God's mercy. For he didn't get what he deserved. Secondly, we see God's mercy. And man is never cursed here. Now, we speak generally of the curse, and certainly man is under the curse of sin. If you read this passage carefully, you will see that God never pronounced judgment, condemnation, a curse, upon man. He did upon the serpent, verse 14, cursed are you. He did upon the ground, for man's sake, in verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you but not upon man. For you see, if God had pronounced the curse upon man, the curse that man deserved, it would have been judgment day. And he would not have been left standing. Oh, God pronounced some consequences that continue to this day, but he stopped short of making this judgment day. He stopped short of pronouncing the curse man deserved. In his judgment, 
in his chastening, God remembered mercy. Thirdly, we see God's mercy shown in that God created enmity between mankind and the serpent. In verse 15. Now this is a most curious thing. Man has sided with Satan, who clearly is who the serpent is uh, speaking for. Man has sided with Satan, committing treason against the Creator. And so we might assume that the new battle lines are now drawn. It's man and Satan against God, and they just wait for God to destroy. Well, yes and no. Yes, man has come under the dominion of darkness. Yes, man has come under the kingdom of the evil one. But God puts enmity between man, the descendants of the woman, and Satan and his host. It would forever be a conflict. For God is looking forward to a day when he's going to deliver those people, plunder Satan's kingdom, destroy his household and snatch his descendants away. And so he never lets it get too comfortable. Which brings us to the next and the greatest expression of God's mercy. God not only, not only created enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent, God foretold Christ's great victory. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is widely recognized as the first promise of the gospel in the whole Bible. Here God promises that one who is born of the seed of the woman, a reference to Christ Jesus, most certainly, will crush the head of the serpent of Satan forever. But he will do so at terrible cost to himself, for Satan will strike his heel. Now, what's that talking about? It's such a veiled reference. But this is a promise of the victory of Christ upon the cross. For yes, there he suffered the striking of Satan. But there Jesus himself said was judgment upon the evil one. The apostle Paul writes that Jesus by the cross made a public display, a spectacle of his defeat of Satan and his hosts. You see, right here at the beginning, God shows mercy by foretelling the promise of a deliverer to come, who we know to be the Lord Jesus. God also showed mercy, as we go on down through the text here, in covering man and woman's shame. What a pitiful sight we have here. Adam and Eve, now naked and filled with shame, trying to hide behind some fig leaves sewn together. But God, who just foretold his plan to send a deliverer to save them, 
begins to show mercy immediately in verse 21. He kills an animal. He takes its skin and he makes clothing to cover the man and the woman. This is an act in which it's difficult not to see some foreshadowing of the coming requirement for the death of the innocent lamb to make atonement to cover our sin. And of course, Jesus is that final perfect lamb of God who once for all atones for our sins that we might be covered with his righteousness. Oh, these are wonderful truths, but already they're depicted in a simple little sketch. That God shows mercy and covers the shame. Finally, God shows mercy in that he expels them from the garden. Now, in a sense, the expulsion from the garden is a terrible picture. Look at it again, verse 22 to 24. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Certainly man lost everything. He lost his innocence. He lost his home. He lost his comfort. He lost his good relationship to his wife. He lost his peace in the world. He lost his fellowship with the Creator. He lost the beauty of God's presence. Why did God expel him from the garden, though? Well, it says why, right in verse 22. He must not be allowed to eat the tree of life and live forever. Now, there are a host of things we don't know about this. But what we do know is that God was not willing for man to live forever in this present state. And so God expels him from the garden expels him from the tree of life, cuts him off from that in hope, in expectation, looking forward to the day when God himself would gain for this man complete restoration and eternal life. Oh, do you see, even God's most severe chastening here is an expression of mercy and hope for the salvation of this man and this woman. Oh, dear people, I wish I could be eloquent enough to make you hate sin. But I wish even more that I could describe accurately and adequately the wonder of God's grace. God owed Adam and Eve nothing but death. That's all. And yet, in at least six different ways that I found, God showed them mercy. And the things foretold in those expressions of mercy have become reality for us. For we see God's mercy in ways that they never dreamed. For we have heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus, death and resurrection for sinners. Now folks, Adam understood something of this. At least a little bit of it. And so he responded in faith, joyful faith. You see it there in verse 20? 
You probably missed it as we drove by. Verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of the living. Think about this for a moment. Eve means life or life giver. We would probably say mother. Adam names his wife lifer, mother of the living. She's not even pregnant. <laughs> She's not anybody's mother. We know that because we're told in chapter 4, verse 1, when it was that she conceived Cain. What's Adam doing calling his wife mother, life giver? Folks, he's expressing his faith in the promises of God. He is delighting in the promise of God's mercy. God just said that the seed of the woman would crush Satan's head. That means the woman is going to bear children. That means God's death sentence has been temporarily stayed. And that means God is full of grace. He's shown mercy. Well, you see, this is not unlike when God said to Abraham, who had no, no children, I'm going to call you Abraham instead of Abram. Abraham means father of many nations. <laughs> he had no children at all. Abraham and Sarah laughed. But God meant it. And he showed mercy. In a similar way, Adam in faith calls his wife Eve, the mother of the living. Though the sentence of death hung over him. Because he believed that God had mercy. Do you share Abraham, uh, uh, Adam's faith this morning? Do you share his faith? You have access to much, so much more knowledge of God's saving plan. For You have the whole Bible. You have the whole story of Christ's birth and life and death and resurrection and exaltation to glory. But will you stake your life on it? Will you believe that Jesus died on the cross for sinners like you enough to walk away from them and follow him? Will you trust God's promise enough to rejoice in hope and change your name? Change it to Christian, Christ's one. Change it because you no longer rest in your record thinking you're good enough. Change it because you no longer consider yourself your own master. From now on you belong to him. Change it because you are no longer hopeless. Though you know that you deserve the sentence of death, that you rest in God's mercy promised here and fulfilled in Jesus. This morning I call you to Jesus with this wonderful promise of grace. God, from the very beginning, has shown mercy. We've all heard the saying, well, I've got good news and bad news. Well, that's what we have here in Genesis 3. The bad news is that sin has shattered God's world. And I must tell you that the situation is worse than we ever dreamed. This is what makes life a nightmare sometimes, even today. 
You can read about it in the newspaper. You see, man is not continually progressing to a higher and higher form of being. Nonsense. Man was already once perfect, living in perfect fellowship with God, in beautiful relationship with his wife, and in harmony with the creation. But sin shattered all of that. And man is now fallen and helpless and unable to save himself. Ah, but there's also good news. God has shown mercy. And once again, the good news is better than we could have ever expected. For God has not just lowered his expectation of man and said, okay, I guess we won't have a perfect world anymore and we won't have perfect fellowship, but let man keep on living and uh, he'll know some joy and he'll be plagued by some trouble and Finally, he'll die, the kind of situation we know now. Oh, no, God's plan was much greater than that. God's plan is to redeem his image bearers and to redeem the whole creation with us. And so already in the garden, on that faithful day of chastening, God shows mercy. And what he promised on that day is now accomplished in Jesus. And we only wait for its glorious completion. Amen. Thank you, dear Father, for these great truths from your word. Oh, Lord, we take sin so lightly. We, we, we laugh about it. We joke about it. We're entertained by it. Oh, Lord, help us to understand how you hate it. May we be holy like you're holy. Lord, we too often also take grace for, for granted. We become so accustomed to the sound of the words that we don't understand what it means that when we deserve nothing but judgment, you, for no reason in us, just out of your own love and compassion, have showed mercy not easily, but at the cost of your own son. You put in our place. Take our penalty. Oh, thank you, Lord, for your great grace and your plan to not just leave us in this mess, but to redeem your whole creation. To start by redeeming us from the inside out. And, oh, Lord, I pray that we would understand more of your plan and walk in knowledgeable obedience and faith and joy and confidence as your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.